Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. be sounded in the twinkling of an eye when, uh, when the Lord returns for his own. That, that, that's the last trumpet, the sound of uh, the, the final glory going, going to be with the Lord. We're going to talk about some other trumpets that play a little uh, tougher tune uh, today. And, uh, well, that's what we're going to do. A few years ago, Cindy's parents uh, went to Russia. They came back with a doll. It was a wooden carved doll, kind of round. I know you know what I'm talking about. The thing that was unusual about this doll is you pull it open and there's another doll and you pull it open and there's another doll I think there were seven altogether. I don't even know what the names of those dolls are what are they called what nesting dolls I thought there's some Russian name huh Batroshka and if you don't know no one here is going to know two two little Russian uh, children that you adopted if you don't know what I said I thought it was babushka and I looked that one up that wasn't right Batroshka dolls all right all right, Grandma Babushka Petroshka, whatever. That poor Benjamin, he's, is he around here? I, that's, here's the guy I should have talked to, our, our local Russian pastor. Anyway, uh, it just seems you keep going. You think you've come to the end and you keep going and there's just another one and another one and another one. That, frankly, that reminds me of this morning's text. Just when you think you're coming to the end of the seals. You know, we've been opening these seals for the last few weeks. Just when you think you've come to the end of death and destruction and judgment and all of the rest... The last seal is broken, and what do you find? Seven angels with seven trumpets waiting to blow them. And it's a very unsettling tune. I'll tell you the truth. This is a horrible text. I didn't want to preach it. I put it off this week. I procrastinated. We've had other difficult parts of this book, but I don't think that there are any more horrible than what we are going to look at today. But it is also the Word of God. Somehow God in his sovereignty has seen fit to include this as a part of the revelation in the revelation. And so we need to ask, what does it have to say to us? What does this horrible, unsettling, vivid, drastic image have to say to us today? It is a long text, and so I'm going, it's, you'll find it's not in your bulletin, it is so long. I want to invite you to just listen to the word of God today. Remember, the blessing comes with the listening of this book, according to John. I want you to listen. Perhaps close your eyes and try to allow your childlike imagination to take over and see in your mind's eye what John is trying to describe. And as you're listening, eyes closed or eyes shut, because I know some of you won't obey me on that. Uh, eyes closed, eyes shut. I want you to, to try to discern what is the one word that would describe what you're listening to. All right? Settle in. Give ear to the word of God. I begin with chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. 
And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees, a third of the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, a blaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned black. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill, only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions. And in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe is past, and two others were yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops were 200 million, and I heard this number. The angels and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed 
by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow about his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen, standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the, on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now God speak to us from these troubling words that we might find solace, rest, hope, and peace, which is only available in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we were getting ready for the service today, and I was speaking to Mike, I said, Brother Mike, when you're prepared to to deliver your candidating sermon at some church. Do not choose Revelation 8 <laughs> as your text. Well, do you have an answer? What is the one word that describes what we are hearing? Any ideas? One word. Call them out. Apocalypse, destruction. Glenn, I think you have it. At least it's the one I came up with. Of course, that's the one that gets played today. <laughs> Judgment. I think we have here the judgment of God. And as God's judgment poured out finally upon his rebellious world, I want you to think back to the seals. The seals were basically the work of humankind. Remember? The seals were basically plagues that were brought upon the earth because of the sin of, of humanity. It was um, human, humanity that perpetuated the tyranny. Humanity that brought on the warfare, the bloodshed, the famine, and all of the rest, with, with the exception of perhaps the last one. These plagues were our own doing. These plagues are the result of us saying, I will be my own God and I will rule as I see fit. But when we come, and if you recall, there was an interlude. There was a pause for a moment after those seals. A pause when God placed his stamp upon his people. Whatever that 144,000, whether it is 12,000 Jews from 12 tribes, whether it is the new Israel, the people of God, God places his stamp upon them. Why? Because of this. 
Because of what we have just seen. In fact, did you listen? You heard it alluded to in this text. To protect them for what they were about to experience. And that is the horrible judgment of God. That is what the trumpets are about. When we had a glimpse of what we had a glimpse of in the sixth seal, which was the, remember, the mountains falling in the sea, islands disappearing and all, we see now in technicolor. The first trumpet comes and, and we have hail and fire. And a third of the grass is destroyed, a third of the trees. So it's ecology run amok. The, the environment, I should say, is run amok. The second trumpet blows and a huge mountain, and we don't know what it means, but it is ablaze, it falls into the sea, it, it, and we really are begin to be reminded of the plagues that fall upon Egypt, don't we? These are very similar to the Egyptian plagues, the ten plagues that were visited upon the people before they were finally let loose. And we see the, 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 the ocean somehow turns red, the bl- color of blood, a third of the sea life is destroyed, even a third of the, of the, of the, uh, of the ships. So commerce is affected. The, the food of the sea is affected. The third trumpet blows, and it's a huge asteroid that falls. It has a name. Do you remember the name? Wormwood. And this asteroid falls into the drinking water. So now not only a, a, is the sea polluted, but now the drinking water, our own drink, the springs of life, a third of them are also polluted. And then in trumpet four, the galaxy begins to fall apart. And once again, we were reminded of the pictorial image here. The, the, it's... It's surreal. I mean, you can't have a third of the sun disappear, perhaps, a third of the moon, a third. But it's a way of saying that the galaxies begin to fall apart. Even the galaxies are, are in rebellion, are, are experiencing the, the outcome of God's judgment against the sinful world. Now, these first four, you tick them off pretty quickly. Boom, 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 boom. And then an eagle appears and begins to cry out, whoa, 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 you ain't seen nothing yet, or something along those lines. I think, whoa, 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 the Beatles used that lyric later, or, or yeah, 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 something like that. And I think when we come to these, they take more time with them. We see two more plagues, and just like the seals, then there's an interlude that takes place in chapter 10, and we return to the seventh trumpet. And it is here that we really see, I think, the most horrific pictures. I can't think of anything else in, chap- in, in, in Revelation that is more frightening than the fifth trumpet. Can you? Where this... Something, this angel, the star, falls from heaven. I take that to be Satan. Is given the keys to open up what is called the bottomless pit, literally. It's abyss. And out of that abyss comes this smoke, and from this abyss comes these horrible locusts. He spends a lot of time on the locusts, you know that? I mean, he's pretty enamored of the locusts, and so he spends a lot of time... Well, they, it is obviously demonic. What is going on here is demonic activity. They sting, they torture, they, they, look, they have hair like women, and they have teeth like lions and stingers in their tails, and they... they wreak havoc for five months. People are saying, oh, I wish I could die, and they can't die. It is, it is horrific. And then comes the sixth trumpet. Because if the fifth trumpet brought this horrible torture with no death, now the sixth trumpet takes it to another level. You have 200 million, he counts. He hears the number. 200 million that are invading from the east. You ought to know that the great fear in Rome was of the Parthians who were to the east. And they, they wore long hair, they drove chariots and horses, and they were greatly feared. And so maybe the imagery is in his mind as he talks about this 200 million who will invade. They have this brilliantly colored armor of red and blue and sulfur color. It's striking in it. And as a, but it's not the, the soldiers with their weapons that are the destructive force in this army, is it? It's the horses who have faces like lions, tails like snakes, and out of their mouths come smoke and fire and sulfur, and it is these fumes and the smoke and the fire that kills a third of humankind. 
Horrible, isn't it? Would you preach this stuff? Would you be tempted to skip over it as I was? I was talking to Rick Murray, who's preaching through this, and the cheater, I, I just don't, I don't like the fact he's two weeks behind. He ought to be right here with me. I'm not going to give him any more help. And we were talking about this. This is tough stuff. And yet here it is, in a book that promises blessing if we listen to it. Are you feeling blessed yet? <laughs> Last week, someone shared to me, with me that they have trouble connecting with Revelation. Uh, it doesn't seem to really apply to their life. I'm not sure that that's true. I disagree with it. I think you have to work harder at at it than this. But it is a good question to ask. Just exactly how do these frightening, crazy images apply to our lives? Well, here's one thing, at least. These images remind us of the reality of judgment. Let me say this as clearly as I know how to say it. There's not a soul in this room who will not have to face the judgment of God. Every human being that has ever lived will be judged for what they have known and for what they have done with what they have known. And in the end, the entire cosmos will play a part in that judgment. This is not the first time that the biblical material has words like this. It's not even the first time that the New Testament talks about judgment. Jesus had a lot to say about judgment. I mentioned chapter 24 of Matthew. Anyone go home and read it? Not many of you. Glad to know you do your homework. Um... I received a letter from one man who strongly disagreed with what I said about the church going through the great tribulation. He said, show me chapter and verse. Well, read Matthew 24 and then we'll talk some more. Because I think that anchors the issue for me. Jesus speaks clearly and regularly of the time of judgment that is to come. In fact, get this, in John chapter 9, Jesus says these words. Do you remember this? He says, for judgment I have come into the world. Do you remember that? No, of course you don't remember that because we don't like to remember that. That's not what we think of when we think of Jesus coming into the world. Jesus came to love the world. Jesus came to teach the world. Jesus came to be an example to the world. Jesus came to save the world. But in the same book where God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life, in the same book, six chapters later, Jesus says, For judgment I have come into the world. In that same book a little earlier on. In fact, Jesus said, judgment has been given to me. The Father has given me the prerogative of judgment. And here's what I think Jesus means when he says this. He says, judgment is coming. It is going to happen. In fact, the Father has given judgment into my hands. And because judgment will come someday, I have come now. I have come to do all I can to save the world from the judgment that is sure to come. And I think put another way, Jesus might have saying, because judgment is coming, not for judgment I have come into the world, because judgment is coming, I have come into the world. You know, I've agonized over this text. This isn't the stuff that we like to hear. This is not what we like to talk about. We don't like the idea of judgment. Our children don't like it when we exercise judgment on them. We don't like it when others exercise it upon us. And the prospect of a God who will exercise judgment ultimately, we don't want to hear it. We want to hear forgiveness and mercy and grace. But without the reality of judgment, what need have we of grace? If God is not going to one day judge and punish those who are in rebellion against Him, what is the point of forgiveness? If God is not one day going to judge, what is the point of mercy? Who needs grace? It is because God's judgment will come eventually. And it will be awful in its power and justice. 
that we need desperately the grace that God offers us in Jesus Christ. Unless you know that, you do not take the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus very seriously. Like I said, this isn't the first time that we've heard about God's judgment. It's just that I don't know if we've ever heard it more graphically, have we? It shocks when we read these words. When we listen to these words, it disturbs. And I think that's exactly what the Holy Spirit intended. That's exactly what John intended. If there is going to be real judgment, then John wants us to take it seriously. Are we? Do you? Let me say it again. Judgment is a reality. It is a certainty. One day we will be called to accounts for our lives. Are you ready for that day? But I want you to notice another R. There's a, not only the reality of judgment, there's the restraint of God's judgment in this text. You might say, well, it doesn't sound very restrained to me. But there are clues, in fact, that God is holding back. Did you see them? One word, one, two words, actually, that are repeated again. What is it? One-third, you got it. One-third, one-third, one-third. One-third of the trees, one-third of the grass, one-third of the waters, one-third of the stars, one-third of the human beings. And we might say, our first response, well, that's unspeakable horror. That's unspeakable calamity. And so it is, but it could have been worse. It could have been two-thirds. It could have been all. In fact, when the seven bowls come along, you think, this is fun. When the seven bowls come along, it will be utter. It will be complete. God's judgment will be total. So then the question begs to be asked, why one-third here? Why does God hold back on his judgment? Any ideas? Oh, all kinds of ideas. You are more engaged than I could have prayed you would be in this sermon. I think I heard some of it. He, he is waiting for the world to what? Repent. That's right. He's waiting for the world to repent. He still waits for his rebellious creature to come to its senses, change its mind, and follow him. 2 Peter 3.9 has this wonderful promise. You know it, I'm sure. God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Isn't that a great text? Whatever we do with our Calvinist past, our, our Calvinist present, our, our predestination, that text leaps out as God is willing that not any should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Why does God exercise restraint in the, in the trumpets? Why does God hold back from the utter destruction of an evil world? Because he still wishes that there are others who will turn to him and receive his stamp of ownership. And And become his children. That is his heart. That has been his heart from ever. And is that how it happens? Is that the result of this vivid lesson of theirs? No. Listen to verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues. This is underlined. If he had it in the Greek, it would have been underlined. Bold. Still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons or idols. They did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, their theft. We say, well, we don't have demons that we worship. Really? You haven't watched a lot of movies lately. You haven't gone surfing on some of the porn sites, and I'm glad to hear it on the Internet. We don't have idols of silver and gold. Really? 
If ever there was a nation that did, it is we. While we don't practice magical arts, you read your horoscope. And sexual immorality, theft, that goes without saying, particularly as we're approaching tax time. The text speaks of the reality of judgment. It speaks of God's restraint. And now we discover the earth dweller's rejection of God and of his forgiveness. And you would think that people who have experienced these horrible plagues would be driven to their knees and finally repent and turn to God. And the horrible truth is they do not. They do not. The clear implication is that they had another chance. God was giving them another chance and they squander it away. The horrible truth is that is human nature. Sometimes God uses our great pain in our lives to to cry out to us, to get our attention, to break through our deafness and rejection of Him in the past. Sometimes it works. Disease, broken relationship, business that comes apart, kids that are going crazy, parents that are going crazy. Sometimes God speaks through those moments and we get it. He gets our attention. Cataclysm sometimes draws us back to the Lord, but often the human heart instead, just as in this case, it is so hard, so stubborn, that even with God's righteous judgment staring us in the face, we would prefer to cling to our sinful ways rather than acknowledge Him. There's one more part I want to look at. And that is our response. You notice what happened near the end of the text? An angel appears, one foot on land, one foot on sea, and he has a little scroll, and a voice says, take the scroll and eat it. Kind of weird. And it tastes sweet in his mouth, but bitter to his stomach. And what, why does the angel do this? What is the message here? I don't know, but I'll take a stab at it. For one thing, John is about to take, make a change. Up to now, what, is he, what has he been in this whole process? He, what? Observer. What is he about to become? About to become a prophet. He's about to go from being the observer to the proclaimer. Let me tell you this. You cannot be the proclaimer unless the word of God resides within you. You cannot preach the word of God unless it comes forth from your heart, from inside of you. And so I think there's the image of him eating the the word, eating the scroll, so that he is about to proclaim from the depths of his soul. And that, what about that scroll? It is bittersweet in taste, we are told. It is bittersweet. Well, the gospel is bittersweet. It is sweet because we come to know Jesus Christ. It is sweet because Jesus came to earth and lived and loved us, taught us to love, died on the cross for us, and, for those, and rose again. Those, those are sweet words. That is sweetness. And most people enjoy hearing that part of the story. But the gospel, there's, there's, there's grace, but there's also what? Law. And there's a bitter side to it. Why is it bitter? Because there is a reason that Jesus had to die. Jesus didn't die, as some liberal theologians have said, as an exemplar for us. Jesus didn't die because he was an itinerant preacher whose mouth got the better of him. Jesus died to deal with the holy judgment of God upon a rebellious and sinful earth. Jesus died because someone had to pay the consequences of our sin. And it could be us, but the result of that payment would be eternal separation from God, which the Bible calls hell. And I think we caught a glimpse of hell this morning, don't you? Or Jesus could die in our place, pay the price, receive God's judgment upon himself so that we would not have to. And that is exactly what he did. 
You know, this sounds like it's coming from a different denomination than Presbyterian. But I need to ask you, are you ready for the judgment of God? Because we're not dealing with just someday in the world. For if we, if we, if the, if the Lord does not tarry and returns and all of this occurs in our life, then we'll face it. But if he does not, then one day each of us will have our own little personal judgment day as we stand before God. And we kind of shilly and shally around that. Talk about the love of Jesus and so forth. But that is a bottom line issue. One day we will be called to accounts for what we know and what we have done with what we know. Are you ready for that day? Last Friday, Cindy and Rachel are down in Salt Lake City skiing with Nana and Papa for their vacation. So Cooper and I are batching it. And last Friday, my mom, who was assisting in preschool... And she came in and told me that Cooper wasn't doing very well. He loves preschool. And so I came into the room and he was crying and quite distraught, runny nose, obviously sick. And so I took him into my office. I had a conference call I had to make. And so I held him in my arms on my chair and made this conference call. And my little guy just fell asleep right in my arms. And uh, so the call went on for a while. Finally, I hung up. I just sat there for a while because Cooper's a pretty active boy. And these moments of just treasuring... Him are few and far between. But finally, I, uh, I picked him up and I laid him down on the carpet next to my chair. It was a little chilly in the room, and so I went, and the only thing I could find in my closet with which to cover him was one of my preaching robes. So I took my robe and uh, spread that big black thing over the top of my little boy, and it swallowed him up. You could barely see his little head peeking out, and then I actually sat down in a chair and just looked at him. At my sick, little, wonderful boy. And it struck me, when we receive the gift of Jesus' salvation, that is exactly what happens to us. He wraps us in this beautiful robe of righteousness. When God looks upon us, we can't even be seen inside of the thing. We are hidden In our tiny, sick state, we are hidden in the righteousness of Christ. When the Father looks upon us, he sees not our sin-sick state, but the righteousness of his beloved Son, which engulfs us. And we are spared his judgment. The judgment of God will one day come upon this earth, upon each and every one. You do not want to face that judgment alone. You cannot. You dare not. And if the horrors of this morning's text cause you to think once again about where you stand with God, then they have accomplished exactly what John would wish they would accomplish. As the ushers come forward, let us pray. These are hard words, Lord, and I... I pray that your Holy Spirit will take that which is chaff, throw it away, that which is wheat, and implant it, that it might grow, that it will find a fertile ground for us. We thank you that you care about sin, that it matters to you, that our choices matter to you. We thank you that you don't look lightly upon the injustice of this world, that you will judge it. You don't look lightly upon children who are being starved, people who are being driven out of their homes, You don't look lightly upon business people who rape their opponents. These things matter to you, and you will judge them. God, I am guilty. 
and I deserve your judgment. How I thank you that in your grace you gave your son to receive it in my place. How I thank that you did that for each one of us. And I pray for the heart that is not sure of that today, that they would open their heart to that gift. Lord, we're going to give you some of our wealth. It is a tool that we use to share the good news of your righteous judgment, but more importantly, of your gracious love in Jesus Christ. Help us to give generously and bless the gift and the giver in Jesus' name. Amen.